We'll be talking about that in the lesson tonight, and this morning rather. <laughs> I want to welcome all those who've come to study the Word of God, to praise His name and to honor Him, uh, to sing the songs that we've just sung, to remember His Son, and to look into His Word for a while together. So thank you for your presence here today to do those things, and if you're visiting with us, we're especially happy that you're here. As you can see on the screen, we're talking this morning about Jesus Christ, the superior image of the ideal man. He is the one that we should be striving to be like, and especially I want to talk to the men this morning in thinking about being like Jesus as a man. The world's idea of uh, a real man is often the Hollywood depiction of some you know, soldier of fortune or vigilante that takes out all the bad guys and protects the innocent and gets the girl at the end of the movie, all of that sort of thing. And, and, and if it's not that, it's maybe some sort of uh, athlete, you know, that everybody admires or who is very successful. But in the movies, the, the hero is often a tough guy who endures trials, he runs the gauntlet, he, he risks his life, he suffers harm in order to right things that are wrong, and uh, we'll just have to say that many of those qualities are, are admirable, frankly. Uh, some of the qualities, obviously, usually in those action heroes, not so much. <laughs> but often there are good qualities that are being displayed. If you take that image of the Hollywood hero and you mix it with... Um, what happens in the minds of the common man where that tough action hero is sort of combined with self-centeredness and egotism and domineering qualities, that really completes the picture of manhood in America and in Western civilization generally. That's what most people think a real man is, I believe. Maybe, maybe the biblical epitome of that is Samson. You know, he, uh, he gets what he wants. He does what he wants. Sure, he's destroying the enemy, but he's really a selfish, egotistical human being. And we see those qualities in so many men of the world, and I'm afraid oftentimes in so many men who see themselves as Christians. I will say this, there's another side to this, some kind of an opposite of this, that is also popular in the world today, because the world has spent the last 50 years glorifying uh, this concept of manhood, while on the other hand, feminizing manhood, encouraging men to act more like women in every aspect of life. And so you, you look at the, the talk shows on television, and I don't look at those hardly at all, but you know, you, you have on a lot of the daytime talk shows, apparently a, a lot of women are, are in these talk shows, and they're talking about the problems of the world, typically, social issues, whatever's coming up, and what will sometimes be said, I understand, as uh, you know, people in the world, women, whoever, talking about the situations of the world, you know, and the problems that seem to be unresolved, the, the, the question comes up, well, where are the real men? Right? Where are the real men 
who are, are, are going to stand up and solve these problems? Well, in many cases, the very people that are asking the question have made women out of the men. Have feminized them so much that they don't even know what a real man is. And so all of those issues, all of those issues come into play when we begin to talk about what a man really is and what God desires a man to be. In our society, just frankly, appropriate masculinity is unappreciated, undervalued, denigrated, and largely absent from our culture. The story of humankind began in the Garden of Eden. And you say, if I were to ask you, that the first thing that went wrong was that sin sin entered the garden when Eve ate of the, the forbidden fruit. When God was dealing with that, He comes and walks in the garden. And His first, the first thing that He says in Genesis chapter 3 and 9 is, Adam, where are you? Now God already knew what had happened. Notice He doesn't say, Eve, where are you? Notice He doesn't Wonder where the devil is. But the first question he asks is, Adam, where are you? And that's really the question this morning. Man, where are you? Because God has placed you as the federal head of humankind. It means that you're responsible for what has happened. God deals with the man first because man has the responsibility. In our homes, in society, in churches, everything is not the fault of men. Now, a lot of things are, but everything isn't the fault of men. But I want to tell you this, whether it's your fault or not, man, you're responsible for it. God wants to know where you are and what you're doing to solve whatever the problems are, whatever the issues are. We need to understand this in our homes. Your wife, your children may have problems. You say, well, that's not my problem. Yes, it is. You may or may not have caused it. But you're responsible for it. When your favorite football team or basketball team or soccer team or whatever it is, when it has two or three or four four or 20 losing seasons in a row, whose fault is it? First first place they're going to go to is the coach, right? He's the head of that. In Ezekiel chapter 22, Israel, Judah, had utterly failed to live up to all that God had expected and anticipated. Ezekiel 22 and verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and the needy. They wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Sounds a lot like America. And so God says, I sought for man among them who would make a wall, who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. God could not find a man to stand in the gap. 
During the same time period, of course, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, their lives overlap. Ezekiel's in captivity, Jeremiah's in, in Jerusalem, and later on Egypt after Jerusalem was destroyed. But Jeremiah writes early on in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 1, Run to and fro in the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search the squares to see if you can find a man. One who does justice and seeks truth. Just one man. Who's going to solve the problem. Now today, societies and families and churches and nations need men. And God is still asking, where are you, man? Where are you? God, our Heavenly Father, has not left us guessing at what is entailed in true manhood because He has sent the ideal man to this earth to show manhood to us. Jesus is God's explanation of manhood and also God's explanation of Godhood. Isn't that interesting? In the same person. God's expression of manhood is seen from Jesus, sent in Jesus, sent from heaven. In John 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh, that God, which God communicates with. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what God wants us to understand about Himself. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, John goes on to say, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So Jesus again is, is God's idea of God and God's idea of man presented in one person to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 47, Paul says, the first man was of the earth, that's Adam. He didn't turn out like he ought to have. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. Here's the man God wants us to see. Here's the man God wants men to become. Jesus demonstrates manhood as the head of the church. Headship involves leadership and responsibility and sacrifice and love and direction. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. The parallel between the husband being the head of the wife and Christ as the head of the church is clear in Ephesians chapter 5. The words as or just as are used repeatedly in this section. And so you see, even in this verse, the husband is the head of the wife as also, as also Christ is the head of the church. In verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Yes, the church is the bride of Christ. And in loving His bride and being the head of the bride and sacrificing for the bride, Christ to demonstrate to, to men how they ought to be behaving in their families. How they ought to relate to their wives. How does a real man relate to his wife? He loves her. It's her head. And He sacrifices Himself for her. Jesus shows us what manhood really is. Jesus 
He is meek. And it's what makes him so strong. In Matthew chapter 11, and verse 28, Jesus, in the familiar passage, invites us all to come to Him. He says, Come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest into your souls. Come to Jesus to learn what you ought to be in every aspect, no matter who you are. But the thing that Jesus wants to know about Himself, as us, wants us to know about Himself as we come to Him, is that He is, the New King James says, gentle and lowly. The King James Version has meek and lowly, and the New International Translate, New, New English Translation has gentle and humble. So there's different ways of filling in those blanks. But the word meek and gentle are used synonymously there, and lowly and humble. And that's who Jesus is. How often when we think of what a real man is, do we think of meekness? Most of us couldn't even say really what meekness is. How often when we think of real men, do we think of humility? If humility makes a real man, I may say that we have been a long time in the United States of America since we elected a real man as president. That's not, that's not how Americans see real men. Not as humble. But that's who Jesus was. And He was meek. He was meek. The meekness of Christ is to be emulated, copied by His followers. And it's seen in a number of different ways. And I'd like to uh, show from Scripture a couple of those very important ways this morning where Real men will emulate the meekness of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul talks about the way we fight for what's right, yes, real men fight for what's right, but not in the way the action heroes do in the movies. Here's what Paul says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold towards you. Paul is trying to right some wrongs in the church at Corinth. And he's appealing to them, notice the way he says it, by the meekness and gentleness, the very things that Jesus says he was. Paul says, I as a man, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is how I'm trying to right these wrongs. With an approach that's meek and gentle, but also bold and courageous. And he indicates that as well. And he goes on and talks about how he's, how he's approaching this conflict, this problem that he's got to solve, a huge problem at Corinth. And he says in verse 3, continuing in this context, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul's weapons were not the physical weapons of the sword. Or the machine gun. Or judizzo. Or whatever it might be. That wasn't his way of going. That wasn't his approach. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they are mighty in God. 
for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, so here is here are weapons that Paul is going to use to right the wrongs, to get the Corinthians to be what they ought to be. The weapons that he was using all revolved around the words of Jesus Christ. The attitudes of Jesus Christ. Meekness of Christ is emulated by what we understand to be wise and good leadership. Go to James 3 with me and notice as James addresses this very point. He asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, again, in the world, that person, the real man, is the person who gets the job done at any cost, who is effective, who may have to hurt a lot of people to get it done, but he's going to get it done. The one who, again, is probably egotistical. The one who, again, is domineering. We'll talk about that some more in a minute. The one who doesn't mind being selfish, being self-centered to achieve what he wants to achieve. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let it show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. By good conduct. The way you act is, is good, can be described as good. The meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. That's the opposite of what James is advocating concerning the wisdom of leadership. This wisdom, the wisdom that is bitter, that is self-seeking, that is selfish, this does not descend from above, but is earthly, it is sensual, it is demonic. May I say to you then that the picture that many have in their minds of what a real man is. is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Because it doesn't come from God, it comes from the devil. That's not a real leader. Where envy and self-seeking is, confusion and every evil thing are there. Why do you think our society, political, cultural... Related to so many issues. Why, why do you think there's so much evil and confusion in our society? Self-seeking. And when evil and confusion get in the church, why does it come? Because when, when evil and confusion get in the home, why does it come? Because men are evil and self-seeking. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. When was the last time you ever thought, when have you ever, when have we ever thought of a real man being characterized, his leadership and his wisdom being characterized by this phrase, he is willing to yield. Well, that's not a man. That's a wimp. That's a compromiser. 
That's somebody didn't have, that won't get his way. No. That's the wisdom that's from above. Meekness, according to W.E. Vine in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. Park that in your brain. Meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down because it is not occupied with self at all. Unquote. That's meekness. That's Jesus. That's a real man. Not occupied with self at all. The Greeks use the word, and I've uh, shared this with you before, the Greeks use the word for meekness to describe uh, a mighty stallion that had been broken and was under the complete control of its rider. Here you have all of this power, all of this ability, but it's all channeled by the one who's in control of it. Our lives, however powerful we may be as men, should all be controlled by Jesus Christ. That's meekness. Bitter envy and self-seeking are the predominant traits of earthly wisdom. But they're not the predominant traits of a real man. In Jesus we learn that to have dominion does not require us to be domineering. And here's where men just don't make the connection. We understand that, for instance, the man is to be head in his home. He's head of the wife. And that word does suggest dominion. So we think, well, we're in charge. We're responsible. We have dominion. Right. But dominion does not require you to be domineering. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. We've looked at this verse. This is such a rich verse in so many ways for Christians. We talked about it uh, a week or two ago. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And we focused on that. But it goes on to say, if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Who has ultimate dominion? Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, when could we ever say that Jesus Christ was domineering? Not one time. I mean, not one time. We extend His dominion in us and through us. Not by force, but by patience and long-suffering. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11. He's praying for the Colossians that they might be strengthened with all might according to the glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. The word translated power there is the same word that's translated dominion. Christ's dominion then flows through us in what way? Through patience and long-suffering and joy. 
and servanthood. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, uh, Matthew 20 verse 25, you know that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. See, this problem that we're having with male leadership in our society is not a new problem. Okay, <laughs> It goes back a long way. And in biblical times, the times Jesus lived in, and well before then, surely, the, 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 the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, you want to be a man, you want to be great, he'll be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's a real man. He didn't come to, to be served, he came to serve. He didn't come to get, he came to give. It wasn't about himself, it was about everybody else. He came to give his life. There's a real man. He came to give his life. There's a man's purpose. To give his life for others. In this passage, if you look at some of the different translations, kind of interesting to look at. The King James Version, uh, where it says, Lord it over and exercise dominion, or exercise authority. In both of those places, the King James, the old King James Version says, exercise dominion. The word that's translated lord it over or exercise dominion is translated in the Holman Christian Standard Bible as dominate them. The leaders of the world, the men of the world, their idea is I'm going to dominate you. And what did Jesus say? That will not be so you. God gave man dominion. But He never asked him to be domineering. It's a lesson that we've just got to learn, men. The amazing thing about Jesus Christ is that He overcame all of human weaknesses, all of our infirmities. He shared in them. He understood them. But He overcame them. And particularly, there are three weaknesses, if you will. The Bible would call them infirmities, which also translated weaknesses. There are three weaknesses of men that are particularly besetting, particularly besetting to many of us that Jesus showed us can be overcome by men and need to be overcome by men if we're to be real men. men the first of them is anger. It's amazing how many of these action heroes, you know, it's when they get mad that they do their great thing. <laughs> and there is a righteous anger that can motivate us to great deeds. But we're to be angry and not sin. Christ knew what it meant to be angry. The Bible tells us that He experienced that specifically. Uh, he had anger toward people who were unbelievers when they should have accepted the truth. But in 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter writes that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. Verse 23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What happens to most men is we think, well, if, if somebody hurts us, man, we are mad and we're going to get them back. They're not going to get away with that. If they punch me, I'm going to punch them. If they say something bad about me, I'm going to say something bad. If they ruin my life, I'm going to ruin their life double. And all of that is motivated by anger and vengeance. Jesus knew what anger was. He felt the pain of the reviling and certainly the pain of what He was enduring physically on the cross. He heard the horrible things that people were saying about Him. He heard the way that they were denigrating Him. And yet, though He could have called twelve legions of angels, He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's some anger there, right? That's Jesus being a man. Jesus overcome, overcame pride. And if anybody ever had reason to be proud, to be lifted up, it would have been Him. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, though He was in the form of God, the ESV says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's the humility of Jesus. Jesus served others. As we already said, as he said, he came to serve others. The night that he was betrayed, the the symbolism and and what was involved in him washing the disciples' feet, as we've said oftentimes about that event, washing feet was a a common courtesy and a common custom in, in Israel in the first century. It would have been something normally that was done entering any house. Any guest would have had their feet washed. Normally by the lowest person in the house. If there was a young child, that would be their job. You know, nowadays it's taking out the trash or whatever. In biblical times, it would be the job of the youngest child. If they had servants in the house, it would be the job of the lowliest servant to wash the feet of the people who are coming in the house. Jesus is gathered the night that He was betrayed, Himself and His twelve apostles. And they're all sitting there with dirty feet. No one's going to be the servant. Jesus becomes the servant. The text will say in John 13 and verse 12, when He washed their feet, taken His garments and sat down again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call Me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. He is their Lord. He is the one who has dominion. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's one thing to know you ought to be a servant. It's another thing to be a servant. It's another thing to wash the feet, to do the menial task. And lastly, Jesus overcame the besetting problem of the vast majority of men in this world. And that is the problem of lust. We know that Jesus endured all of the temptations that every other human, including men, endure. For the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we do not have a priest who cannot be sympathized with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Did Jesus ever see a pretty woman? I'm sure he did many, many times. Did Jesus ever see a woman who was attractive? I'm sure he did. What was the result of that? Lust? Never. Sin? No. In Hebrews 12 and verse 3, Jesus was tempted as any man is in all the ways men are. And yet the Hebrew writer says that we need to consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls because you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. We've got to fight against sin. We need to be a man like Jesus was a man. We've talked about sins like pornography, sexual immorality, that, that have just infected to epidemic proportions our culture and oftentimes churches. We need real men like Jesus who are going to stand against those things and stand strong in their personal lives against them. When I think about real men in the Bible, Jesus is the ideal. There were several others and I think one other that we're going to close with this morning is David. David was uh, pretty much a real man. He certainly made mistakes, wasn't always all that he should be, and certainly gave in to lust on, a, on an occasion. But he was described as the man after God's own heart. He is the one on whose throne Jesus is now setting, sitting. He was a great example of a godly man. And he was a man's man. He was the killer of bears and lions and a giant Philistine. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a soldier. He was a leader. He was a king. Paul says of him in Acts 13 and verse 22, that God raised up David as a king. To whom he gave testimony, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. 
There's a man. You know why he's a man? Because he's willing to do God's will. When David gets ready to die,